I screwed up and hit a yellow pole. And so now I have some. I saw some. I was like, is that new? Okay. Or? Okay. You want to tell, let me tell you how lazy and stupid I am. So we, we were just, a couple of million guys were just, you know, joking around at work. And I was leaving and one of my buddies, he opens up my gas tank. You know, just opens up the, 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 the flap. I'm thinking, ugh. So I was lazy. I'm like, oh, my word. You know what's going. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to get out. It's like, I don't want to get out of the vehicle and just shut it. So there was some post right over there oh. near the station. I was thinking, if I get close enough, I'm a pretty good driver. If I just, you know, barely tap that post and hit the flat, (laughs) I can close it and I don't have to worry about getting out of the truck. And so I get close, I get close, and I hear, I'm like, oh, shoot. I get out, I'm like, why? Why? I get in and defeat and drive off. You're precious. Oh my I'm word! So dumb. That's, that's the kind of stuff you see videos of just on the internet, where like a CCTV camera on like a gas station, and you just laugh at other people being stupid. But, <laughs> you know. never thought it that was you. That was you. you. You never think you're the idiot until you are. Uh, and if that's not a cold open, I don't know what is. Welcome to Cross Training, <laughs> where we look at faith and practice through a biblical lens. I'm your host Matthew Thompson, and Matt the. Definitely the co-pilot. You ain't driving anything today. <laughs> today, yeah. <laughs> Who are you? I'm Tanner Higgins. Nice to meet you. <laughs> but we don't have uh, Mason Simmons with us today. He, I think he's got strip throat and he's got a sore sore throat. So uh, he is uh, indisposed this week. So uh, we'll hopefully he'll be better next week. Don't worry. He don't have the big old C. Um, so it'll be just me and Matthew. So join in. Buckle Back to up. the good old days. The good old days for like what? Uh, two months. I think like, it wasn't much. Our, well, realistically speaking, I think our first two like trailer esque episodes where we just introduced the the concept of cross training and then the the yep. Christianity to me yep, episode. Yep, yep. I think that was it. And like when we actually started doing episodes, like Mason was just like, "Hey, I'll, I'll join in." One. And then the rest is history. I mean, goodness, how many episodes are we down now? Thirty one. Over thirty one episodes yeah. in. This this is this will be episode thirty two. It's been a minute. Before you know it, it'll be a year. Yeah. What are we going to do for, for a year Well, within our first season, it, we've moved three rooms. Oh, yeah. So we're, we're doing a different room, try, trying to, you know, try to get comfortable and uh, trying to situate things and stuff like that. So, yeah. And we're not averse to, to change. So, I mean, if, if you're listening to this and you're you're thinking, man, they could do this better or they need to do this or yeah. their their music sucks, like, let us know. Yeah. It, it, we can't change nothing about the voices. Sorry. I just I sound like a little girl all the time. <laughs> yep. <laughs> no, but season one is is for finding our footing. So when once season two hits, that's that's permanent. We we can't change anything. We won't. Well, we will refuse. Well, we know the the crawling stage is getting there. You know, and that's what the emails for is for criticism and for you know slap on the hands or pat on the backs or whatever. We've only had like basically one email of a recommendation of t-shirts and merchandise. Of like slogans that we've said. I'm not going to make mention of who, but yet you know who you are. But we're not making Sassy Jesus a T-shirt anytime soon. We we do have Carpet Jesus on oh the wall. Oh my! Oh, we yeah, we have to bring that up. So the new room that we're in, yeah. there is a large carpet tapestry <laughs> from like the '60s of white Jesus. <laughs> it's beautiful, and, and the thing is that like we can't. I don't know how to take it down because it's like 
bolted to the wall. Yeah, like it's like, part of yeah. the wall. But it's it's a good conversation piece. It's beautiful. But I feel like it absorbs sound waves. So I mean, yeah, we'll 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 keep it up there. Black carpet. Jesus <laughs> died for our acoustic sins. I guess. <laughs> Oh, but, I love it. But uh, as always, or well, it seems like always, because this, this has been a, a long road that we've been traveling. Although we're 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 getting we're getting close to the end, yep. John. Like we've we've got I believe five ish yep. weeks yet left. This. Yep. There's 21 chapters in, in the book of John, so yep. we'll close off there and then take a little break and start season two up. Yeah, we've we've been on the back half here for a minute, and I mean, just I mean from the content of the chapters, like it's clear that the the end is coming. I say mm-hmm. end, like with quotations obviously because well for one there are just literally plenty more books of the new testament but in terms of jesus ministry like it does seem like the the period is coming to the, at, the, at the end of the mm-hmm. sentence so with that in mind we're going to be going over john chapter 16 today yeah john chapter 16 is a fantastic chapter one of the shortest chapters to be honest you know so john 16 we we've got we've come this far and it's coming to the close of the ministry and this is uh ripe getting into the part where he's going to be, you know, arrested and uh, tried and executed and raised again on the third day. And so I think within the past couple of chapters, Jesus is kind of basically uh, closing the scene and closing the book for the disciples and, and conversating with them and trying to give them comfort, trying to give them peace and understanding of what's about to happen. And a lot of it seems like they just don't fully grasp the situation here. And we'll get to see here in a minute of how the, the disciples kind of uh, – hold on to some of the truth that Jesus lays out. But, you know, verses 1 through 4, it begins with uh, Jesus talking and warning his disciples about the future persecutions and warning so that they are not giving into fear, but also that their faith may be made stronger. So uh, Jesus, he says, I've told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. So there's a reason why he's telling the disciples this. And I think he's not only telling the disciples, but he's also telling us. It's like, I'm telling you this stuff so that you won't lose faith. For you will be expelled from the synagogues, and a time is coming when those who kill you will think they're doing a holy service for God. This is because they have never known the Father or me. Yes, I'm telling you these things now so that when they'd happen, you'll remember my warnings. And I didn't tell you earlier because I was going to be with you for a while longer. So Jesus, he tells these things. He warns the disciples saying, you know, there's going to come a time you're going to be kicked out of the synagogues. You're going to be persecuted, you know, and the people that are going to do it are going to do it because they think they're going to be doing what God has told them to do. They, and they want, they think they're doing what God got part of God's will. Jesus, he wanted to warn them so they wouldn't be surprised when it happened. And I think that he's warning us, too, is that even though we as Americans were blessed to be in a nation that we don't witness true persecution the way that other uh, bodies of believers in other nations worry about persecution. But yet I think that we need to be aware of this because then I think we need to we need to suffer with the fellow sufferers. But verse 2 and verse 3, it's sad. it's a sad thing that the ones who are doing the killing are— in the persecution, see themselves as the holy servants of God. And I automatically think of Paul. When I was reading this, I was thinking of Paul. And so I looked uh, in Acts chapter 8, 1 through 3, uh, it says this, And Saul approved of his execution, which was Stephen, which was the first martyr. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, led by Saul, led by Paul. 
and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And I kind of want, want to go back to that because I thought that was interesting. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So going back to that verse 1 right there in Acts chapter 8, did you see that, that the church was scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except the apostles, the people that Jesus spoke to and said, you know, have faith, don't lose heart. They will persecute you. So those that were basically following Jesus to the very end, um, well, let's exclude the time that they kind of disappeared during the execution part. But the ones that were with Jesus throughout the ministry stayed in Jerusalem. I thought that was kind of interesting is like those that actually heard the words from Christ himself were the ones that were faithful enough to stay even in the midst of the persecution. Now, when you say that um, Jesus is warning of like these people that will uh, be persecuting, think that they're, that they're doing in the service of God. When you say that that reminds you of uh, Saul, Paul, whatever you want to call him. Well, I mean, he was Saul when he was doing potato, stuff. potato. Um, was there any indication that Saul believed that he was doing God's work? Well, he's doing as a, a part of the Sanhedrin court. I mean, he he saw Jesus and his Christ and the Christ followers as blasphemers, because basically he was part of the group that crucified Jesus in the sense of that he was probably, you know, being trained up to be part of the Gamamel. Uh, court system. And so I don't want to say that, you know, it doesn't say in scripture anywhere, but I'd I say, say I, I, man, I mean, I'm open to being like taught things out of scripture. Cause I mean, obviously I don't know everything, but I'd never heard that before. So let's just imagine this. Cause I mean, when first century church in Acts chapter eight, this is probably around 35 AD and Jesus died probably around 33. So this is maybe a year or two or a couple after the crucifixion. So it's probably safe to say that when Jesus was on trial, this kangaroo mock trial to to crucify him, Paul slash Saul was already in the backgrounds and probably was at this trial, either out in the crowd or in some form of fashion. I don't I don't think he has had a hand in it, but yet he was probably knew about it and was probably you know looking at the headlines and you know whatnots. But he basically I think that he he knew about it in the sense and so when it come down to when he was leading in first, first century church, that he was dragging people out into the streets and putting them in prison, he was gung-ho of getting rid of these Christ followers. Because, hmm. I mean, I knew due to the fact that Paul does reference it in some of the letters that he writes to the church. Oh, several times. Um, that, like, he knew the scriptures before he was saved because I mean, yes. that, that was part of his responsibility to know that so he could, like, attack these people uh, when he was ravaging the church. But I had no clue that it was likely that he was a member of a quote-unquote religious sect like while he was doing that that's mm -hmm. that's news to me that's well he was being he was being trained to be the next like head dude oh yeah yeah that, and that's another thing that he says but yeah. I, i'd never really picked up on that uh from it so that, dang that's pretty cool so in verse four it makes mention that uh yes i'm telling you these things jesus says i'm telling you these things so that that when these things happen that you remember my warning i didn't tell you earlier because i was going uh, to be with you for a little while longer. And Jesus didn't tell them these things of persecutions at the beginning. And I kind of, I kind of, the reason why I saw that maybe he did this is that he knew the hearts of man. He knew the hearts of the disciples and he knew that possibly, because you see it later on, that they might turn tail and run because they saw persecution in the near future. Do you think that, or, or is that kind of the reason why he kind of held that information of persecutions uh, later on in his ministry? 
Well, I think that that argument does have legs. I mean, I won't outright refute that. Yeah. But I just kind of read it as, like, Jesus acknowledges that this is the natural progression progression of this uh, new way to worship him that he's mm-hmm. introduced. Like, it, it's really just kind of a step one, step two, step three, step four thing. Like, he's at step six, and step six is to acknowledge that, like, hey, there are going to be some issues. Like, things, things are going to get tough. I mean, because Jesus has never really been one to sugarcoat. I mean, if... If it was his intent to tell them at an earlier time that there was going to be all this craziness going on, then I don't think there was anything stopping mm-hmm. him. I think it was just this was the time that it felt necessary to divulge this information. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you've got a Jesus is introducing a lot of new concepts pretty rapidly to his close followers. I mean, the, the Holy Spirit has come up in discussion already, and there will be more uh, throughout this chapter. So, I mean, it's we're putting our serious helmet on. Like there's that acknowledgement of like, okay, now it pushes coming to shove rubber's about to meet the road. It's time to get the game plan out there. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think it was just kind of a natural progression of, of the plan, but I mean, I, I don't disagree with yeah. your idea either. That's definitely got credence as well. It's very relevant when Jesus is within the, the, the within the people and, and is giving uh, conversations and teachings and, you know, giving uh, messages of hope and peace. But then within that, you know, we talked about last week, because there's a message of hope and, and peace that he gives, if you're not part of that, there's a part of despair and depravity apart from Christ. So here, this is, you know, this is right before Jesus is crucified. And I think one reason why that he's giving them this warning uh, of, of, of persecutions and stuff like that is like, you know, don't lose heart. Don't give, don't, don't be in fret of this. He's like, no, I give you a comforter because of this. And if like, I'm, when I leave you, it's not going to, I'm not going to completely leave you. I'm going to send a comforter to you. And while they were with him, they felt safe and comfortable. But once they were without, they will lose hope and basically run. And this is one Jesus, and this is pre-Holy Spirit, you know, that little time frame that they're away from Jesus, Jesus is on the cross, and the Holy Spirit was, isn't within the apostles. You know, that's a disciples. wild concept, because that 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 hit me hard when I was uh, reading through your notes and kind of studying along mm-hmm. while I was uh, doing my reading today, that there was a time, well, I mean, it's not even that there there was a time, really, like, there was a there's been a huge block of time throughout human history that like the Holy Spirit wasn't doing his thing on earth. Mm-hmm. Like that's nuts to me. Like I, I literally can't fathom what's, what that's like to not have the Holy Spirit. And that's something I've never really thrown more than two and a half brain cells towards. So that cause when you're reading like that, there would be like that, that fear, that doubt that there would be this time where Jesus wasn't there and, Neither was the Holy Spirit, like physically speaking, like they wouldn't have that that physical reminder. And it just made me think like, man, I don't I don't know what it's like to not have the Holy Spirit. Like, imagine that just not being a a thing, really. So let me me also want to clarify this is that I think I'm not trying to get into heresy here because this is a this can lead uh, down a path of heresy called modalism. And modalism is the doctrine that the persons of the Trinity represent only three modes or aspects of the divine revelation, not distinct and coexisting persons in the divine nature. So it's basically that God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit have different modes throughout time and history. Yeah. So let's just... It's like how the divine Son existed before Jesus was on the earth. Yeah. So Is that kind of what you're getting at? Well, in the sense... Okay, so the modalism... Uh, is the is the aspect of like when Jesus was on earth, God was not on the throne. 
And now, oh, okay. and so it's basically yeah. he's changing modes gotcha. uh, in, in one place to another. So it's like that's, that's one reason I don't like the uh, the H two O the water analogy and ice analogy and vapor analogy of the of the Trinity because it's it's changing modes. I'm all They're about not that, that fidget spinner theology, man. Yeah, well, fidget spinner. <laughs> but basically, because when you when you have ice, you all all you have is ice. You don't have vapor and you don't have liquid. It retains the same thing, but then once you vaporize it, it's, you don't no longer have liquid or solid. So that's a type of modalism that they change. But yet the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and the Son. This is one thing we can't we can't hash out in one episode. It's, I mean, theologians have been discussing it for thousands of years, but each part of them can are the same, retain its individuality, but then also support each other in the same. So, you know, have you seen that triangle where it's like God the Father is yeah. is God and is the Son and is the Holy Spirit, yeah. but yet the Son is not the Spirit in itself and the, and the Son is not God. So it's like you can't, you, you, they all exist together. So needless to say, needless to say is that the Holy Spirit is working within us now, but yet that does not limit God being on the throne and Christ reigning as well as mediator. So they're all working independently, but yet together. Let's oh, just yeah. say that. I didn't mean to. No, that, it's so. just, no, it's, it's something, I mean, you've got this oneness theology as well that, that is within, uh, you know, certain aspects of the church that set, is basically that part of that modalism aspect that God changes modes. So the oneness theology, but yet we are Trinitarian. That's just, yeah. But, but I mean, anyways. just just for the record, like the concept of thinking of the Holy Spirit prior to it officially like coming to to mingle with humanity, like that that's something I've never tried to wrap my head around mm-hmm. before today, like literally today. So if I said that in a way that rubs some people wrong, like rest assured that I do not know what I'm talking about. <laughs> like it, it's kind of just something I'm piecing uh, together as I'm speaking it. So if if I'm not super eloquent in my description, then it's mm-hmm. because, well, I'm still pretty ignorant on it. Uh, but that, that is a fascinating concept that again, I just, I, I don't know what to think of at the moment because I don't, I don't think there's any uh, indication throughout scripture prior to these chapters of uh, the Holy spirit like being a thing. Is it, you mean are, t- are talking about in the old Testament? Well, in terms of like prophecy. Yeah. But in terms of like actual action taking place, you know, if that makes any sense. I mean, I think it had a hand. I think it had a hand because I mean, if you read all the way in Genesis, I mean, if you want to take it, uh, uh, it doesn't matter if you take it literal or, or metaphorically, but it says that the spirit of of God moved upon the True. face of the water. So yeah. you could say a lot of people say that that is you know a a, a talk of a way that uh, is signifying the identity of this Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely an argument to be made there. But I'm not smart enough on this topic to Neither talk am I. anymore about we're it. Just talk, so. We're just talking out of our, out of our, out of our mouths. So the next uh, chunk of verses that we have um, is 5 through 7. I'll read that right quick and we can discuss. Jesus says, But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have told you these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the counselor won't come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. Uh, you've got a question here, and I guess I'll pose it. And we can uh, hash it out a bit. Jesus makes a statement. He says, "You don't know where I'm going." Mm-hmm. There's one, one, one. There's one issue with with that statement, though. <laughs> yeah, issue, no. issue in, in quotes um, in both John chapter 13 and John chapter 14. Previous Peter episodes and Thomas asked those questions yep. respectively. So 
why is Jesus at, why does Jesus say you don't ask where I'm going when that exact phrase has come out mm-hmm. of two disciples' mouths that we know of already? Yeah, I thought that was interesting too because when I read that, I was like, uh, they have asked this question. They have asked this question. I mean, Peter says the same thing, and, and like you said, and Thomas does the same. Basically, asks the same question. I'm thinking, well, Jesus, weren't you listening? Uh, but that's not the that's not the case, and at least that's not what I, I've I've gathered from this whole. Th- and I've actually read some commentaries and and you know seeking other. Uh, people's thoughts on this conversation as well. And I kind of, before I, and I think, here's a little caveat. If you're looking at scripture and you're looking at commentaries, what what I would recommend is that if you have a question about like a section of scripture, I would search your mind and your heart first and try to see, okay, what is this actually saying? And try to come to some kind of conclusion and then look at someone else's uh, commentary or idea behind it. Because then you can like, okay, where have I gone wrong on this? Because I think it's important for your spiritual walk to search first and then look at someone else. So needless to say, uh, I, I, I think we kind of, I, I, I searched commentaries, I searched my heart, and, and I think that the Lord led down the same direction. But so what was Jesus getting to actually if, if, the, if they have actually asked the question twice already? And my thoughts were is that Jesus must have been asking a deeper word value than just by what those words. Uh, you don't ask where I'm going. I think Jesus was focusing more on the heart than what Peter and Thomas were focusing on the physical aspect. Because when they asked this question, they were, I think the context was like, okay, so Jesus, you're, you're leaving, you're talking about leaving us and leaving such and such. So where are you going? Are you going to Bethany? Are you going to Judea? Are you going to you know, Nashville, where the heck are you going, Jesus? You know, the question I think in Peter and Thomas's heart was on a physical sense of location. But Jesus, I think that he's asking the question, you don't know where I'm going, and a more spiritual heart level. Jesus, I think uh, Thomas and Peter, they're asking, what will happen to us when you leave? But Jesus may have been more focused on the heart of what will happen to you when you leave. And there's a deeper there's something deeper than the location of physicality than what what Peter and Thomas were probably thinking. Yeah. Here at Cross Training, we are no strangers to making fun of disciples and other individuals in the Bible for not understanding what Jesus is talking about on the first go around. True, because I'm 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 they're a mixed company with us. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very common theme. I mean, uh, one example that comes to mind is when Jesus says that uh, he has already been given bread or already has bread that that you don't know about you being the, the disciples and the disciples are basically like, did someone give this guy bread already? We mm-hmm. don't know. Like the Jesus is constantly on another page or more specifically the disciples and uh, other people around Jesus are constantly on the wrong page. So I, I definitely agree with you, Tanner. I think mm-hmm. it's just a case of like Jesus being aware that their heart isn't, isn't really in the question They're They're asking physical questions and Jesus is going way beyond the physical. So it's Jesus acknowledging like you've been asking the right questions with the wrong mindset, yeah. and it's time to, to get your mind right, get get your get your heart right, and think um, think of a kingdom not of this world. Start so get that kingdom mind. Let me let me ask you this then, because I think there's a, a realm for both aspects. Do you think that us as Christians do we ask shallow questions? Oh, one thousand yeah. percent. Oh my goodness, there's no question about that. Yeah, I think I think sometimes that we we study too shallowly instead of too deep, which. 
there there are some like I'll, I'll quote one of my favorite quotes from Jonathan Locklear is that he says, you know, scripture can be as shallow enough for a child to play in and deep enough to drown a whale. And I think there are certain things that we need to look like at face value and shallow and in the shallow end and be like, okay, I love this, you know, of God's peace, God's comfort, you know, uh, the thing that he, you know, he gives us eternal life. But then there's some aspects that we need to look a a little bit deeper to try to, to gain a little bit more understanding of what he's trying to say. And so I think there's, there's a facet of both. So I, I I think there that we, but we need to be careful not to be so stuck on, you know, the milk of the teat. Yeah, there's there's value in both the shallow and the deep end, yeah. and we definitely need to be consuming both. It's not like you, I mean, just to, to take this analogy all the way, it's it's not like you actually behave in a pool and like you start yeah. in the shallow end, and then once you get the deep end, like that's where you're at. You don't go back to shallow end. You should you should be taking uh, from both because I mean, if you're well experienced in this uh, so-called shallow end, like that that's how you can disciple to other people. That that's the stuff that's easy to chew and you can introduce mm-hmm. to people. I mean. Uh, one way that you could kind of uh, refer to shallow versus deep end, I mean, shallow, you've got like the Ten Commandments. That, that's something that most people I feel like can memorize, and that's something you could bring up in conversation talking about uh, like the story of Moses, mm-hmm. and that would come up. But if you want to go to the deep end, then you've got the other 603 laws that exist in the Old Testament. So, yeah, the, the Bible definitely does have that, that shallow and that deep that yeah. we should be, definitely be taking part in both. And I, th- uh, and I think it's important to understand that, like, the, the disciples, within all the teachings of Christ during this time, we, we look at them and think, oh, you guys are idiots for not understanding this. But yet they didn't have the spirit to give them discernment and understanding. And, and this is one thing that, that Jesus is talking about here in verse 7. And I like what the ESV says. I, I, I really do. And, and I like the terms that they use here. So, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. And I like that word advantage. And Jesus says, it's better for you that I leave. He says, it is for your advantage that I go away. So if the disciples understood what Jesus is talking about, how much harder would it be for them to see that it is for their advantage that Jesus was arrested? You know, would it been for their advantage? Was it our advantage to see Jesus was beaten? Was it your advantage to see Jesus was mocked? Was it your advantage to see that he was crucified? And all this, I think, revolves around uh, Deuteronomy chapter three, uh, 31, verse 6. And, he says, and God tells the people uh, of Israel, says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And if this is true about the comforter to us, if this is true, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Then Romans eight twenty eight, which says that all things work for his good that love him are called according to his purpose, will be accomplished through that fact that Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God the Father will never leave us nor forsake us and will give us peace and comfort. And at this time, the only thing that the disciples had was Jesus in flesh. But yet, Jesus is like, I'm about to leave you, but yet I'm going to send someone, an advocate, a comforter, um, someone that will lead you and will never forsake you anymore. Uh, just to touch back on you referring to the advantage uh, of Jesus being arrested, beaten, mocked, crucified. Because, I mean, that, that is the sort of stuff that, like, I can definitely put myself mm-hmm. in, in the shoes of the disciples be like, how on earth is that a good thing, Jesus? Like, the, all yeah. the good stuff you've been doing, uh, all these miracles that you've been doing, all these people were converting. Like, why on earth would you want to, to stop that progress? Yeah. Because what, what, do you really need to die? Like, where is where's the advantage to that? Why is that something that has to happen? Um, and of course, this is a, a big picture view, so I'm not going to pretend that I've got the answer for like how mm-hmm. you could convince the disciples that like, oh, it's all it's all going to be okay because I mean they're, they're going to be shocked no matter what. I mean that's a huge thing that happened, um, but that's all necessary. 
to reveal God's mercy. Like, God's mercy. If, if Jesus just dropped dead in the middle of the road, and then he, his little ghost ascends from, from that, fleshly, uh, that, that fleshly vessel, and it's just like, all right, we're good, and floats away. Like, that, there's no legitimacy to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's a cool trick. Don't get me wrong. But, like, there's, there's nothing to – Christianity can't be built off of that. No. And Jesus knew that good and well. That, that's why the plan was to deal with this torture, to take, to take not only the sin in, uh, in, in an invisible sense, if that makes sense, because it's not like we could see physically the sin that he was absorbing, all the past, present, future, because, I mean, the human eye can't comprehend that mm-hmm. goodness. But – you could see the result of the fall on yeah. him through that crown of thorns, the stripes on his back. Like there was that that very real physical suffering that allowed you to see there there's something there. This is significant. Something more is going on here. Like there had to be that that physical uh, taking on of suffering mm-hmm. to legitimize that mercy, make it clear that something very very real is happening here. Well, and it's it's funny how like there is something important about the cross itself. You know, and later on, it, we, it, it talks about it a little bit. I want to quote Bruce Shelley. And uh, he says that Christianity is the only major religion to have its central event, the humiliation of its God. You know, and I think that's, that's just interesting how, like, why do the Christian church and why do we as Christians focus a lot of our—let uh, me, let me get back that up. We focus our whole system around the cross itself, which I'm not saying this is a bad thing. This is, the, this is vital. That's the point. It's the point. But yet when the cross, cross itself is so humiliating, and I think it, 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 and to picture Christ as a broken body and, and, and his, his flesh was torn and b- blood is draining out and he's just beaten and fatigued and can barely take the weight of that. I think that's I think he needed to die by the cross, by the humiliation of that, by the, the weight of the tragedy behind that versus just dying of old age or dying at the end of a road because he tripped and broke his neck. I mean, he, I think to fulfill the prophecy and fulfill more, not more of symbolism, but more of a sense of how heavy and important and devastating sin is to humanity. So let's just say, let's just say that Jesus came at a different time through history. I don't think he could get that out of the lethal injection or the electric chair. That's too humane, I think, if, if, if we're going to talk about death penalty. Imagine people with their necklaces with electric chairs. <laughs> you got electric chair decals on the back of people's cars. <laughs> Little syringes. I got needles around my neck. <laughs> oh, we're good Christians. Oh, oh. no. <laughs> Sorry, carpet Jesus. <laughs> No, but, but, uh, but that's, that's yeah. I mean, that's a very yeah, yeah. cross-like message, though, because that takes, I mean, that's taking death's power away. People are taking the symbol of humiliation, of torture, of death, and, like, that they're making it clear, like, you this this has no power over us. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't take yeah. away our Savior just because you put him on this cross, because there, there's nothing special about that death. Mm-hmm. Like, there were literally two other people on crosses right next to Jesus. People got put on crosses all the time. That was a very common form of torture and death at the time, especially in that culture. Like, there was nothing special about it, but we made it special. Jesus made it special. I mean, he used that phrase, like, take up your cross and follow me. Like, that that, that wasn't something that we did. Yeah. Jesus made it clear, like, that there's importance here. Yeah, I think, and this is just me talking. This is no kind of scholarly evidence or work going back, but I think that Jesus 
came at the right time, which I mean, this is what Paul says. Paul says that, you know, he came at the specific time through history so that the gospel can be spread the best and most efficient way. But I think another part is too, is that the cross and crucifixion and crucifying probably symbolizes a lot of the aspect of the spiritual death and humiliation of that aspect. So there's a lot, I think there could be, I mean, golly, the cross and, and the death and carrying of the sins Jesus spoke about a lot of times is very parallel to teachings that he could do to the to the spiritual aspect as well. So it could just be that he he chose to come at that time because it was the best analogy that he could he could do for our sins. Yeah. And on the topic of uh, Jesus being aware that he's going to be going through this horrible death, like he he talks about this comfort that his followers will still get to have. Like mm-hmm. even even though this I mean their their lord and savior Jesus Christ, even though he was going to die a fleshly death, he makes it clear to his followers like that that's not the end. Yep. There's going to be a comforter uh, that comes. In verses 8 through 11, he goes a little more in depth on that, uh, talking about that comforter. Verse 8 says, When he has come, he will convict the world about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. About sin, because they don't believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to my Father, and you won't see me anymore. About judgment, because the prince of this world has been judged. So a little bit of input I'd like to give before we... Um, get super into that but verse 8 I, man I love that opener when he has come he will convict the world about sin mm-hmm. because th- and this is an issue with Christianity around the world as far as, as far as I know we love to use the Bible as a beaten stick like it's a reputation that we've gotten I mean the world does see Christianity as being this this mean bullying bigoted structure and we, we just we just love condemning other people and I mean they're not terribly wrong. Like we we've done a pretty terrible job of having like that that Christ-like sense of love. And of course, I'm not sitting here saying that like you, you and I are over here doing that. I mean, I know it's not something that literally every Christian does, but enough of them have done it over time throughout recent history that that is a reputation that we've gotten that's very unfortunate. And Jesus, like he theoretically nipped that in the bud. There, he made it clear, like, no, mm-hmm. you you are not to convict. The Holy Spirit will convict. Yeah. You are not to condemn. And I mean, he, he's made that clear multiple times before. I mean, he who is without sin cast the first stone. This isn't a new concept, but Jesus is taking you even further to be like, mm-hmm. you, you don't have to condemn. That's not something that you have the right to do, and it's not something that I'm going to burden you with. That's not a responsibility that I'm going to put on you, because the Holy Spirit's going to do that. Yeah. Even when I'm gone, you don't get to point the finger. Yeah. I'll still be pointing the finger, but through the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and and I, to- I totally agree with that because, I mean, that's the, that's the Spirit's job. He's the one to judge. We're not the one to judge because we don't have – because we're if, if we're doing the judging, then, golly, I'm damned too, you know. But I think that – I think there needs to be a preaching aspect of the sin. But, yeah, I don't oh, think yeah. – I don't think that I need to sit here and be like, Matthew, you need to be convicted of your sin that you've done. You know, but I think as a brother, I need to bring that to you. But, yeah, I think some people have also swung the other way. I think some people have – have swung hard the other way and have left sin completely out of the aspect. So it's not even there to convict them. So I think there needs to be a two part discussion on, on this topic in the sense of like, I think that yes, the spirit is the one that, that convicts, but yet we need to lay out the information and the truth with love. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people have presented the truth without love. What is it? I've said this before in a sermon before is like, Passion without compassion is completely void. You can have passion about anything that you want, anything, but yet people won't listen or understand if there's no compassion along with it. 
So I think that's very important. You can lay the truth out, but yet you need to also love with that truth and allow the spirit to convict and do its job. Yeah. I'm a really big fan of uh, a way Preston Sprinkle puts it. Uh, he, he's got a really good quote. It says, um, obedience comes after acceptance. Mm-hmm. Like, don't, don't condemn before you even get them in, in the church. Like mm-hmm. you don't don't let people think that like oh this this Christian religion this this religion that, that subscribes uh, to this Jesus character they're really big fans of letting people know that they're going to hell and then try to drag yeah. them in a church to fix them. Like that's not how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be operating out of love, love first. I mean that, that's literally the most important commandment according to Jesus himself. So I dare you to disagree. <laughs> so I think the word convict to is is an interesting uh, oh yeah, that's word not a word to, we really use anymore. Yeah, I mean it's a word that I mean to be honest. I mean it's a legal. It's, sense it's a of word. it's a legal sense of word, but yet here it, there's a little bit more context to this word in the Greek. So the word convict carries more weight than a legal sense, but it is to co- expose, to refute, and to convince. You know, it's more than just like you're guilty, you're not guilty. But this is the work of the Holy Spirit, and we've acknowledged this in the world of the individual's heart to convince and to convict those of the truth. Now, I think it's interesting that Jesus gives a three-point uh, sermon topic here, is that, you know, he, he, that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. So this is the ultimate sin, is to refuse the belief and Jesus to, is to deny Jesus. That is the, the, the sin of the world. And Jesus has been, been brought, he's, he says before in the previous chapters, he's been brought into the world to save the world and to bring light unto the world. And if you're not part of that, then you are convicted, you are condemned. And the second part he means that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of God's righteousness. Righteousness is another one of those words that we don't use too often. So righteousness is now available because of Jesus. And Jesus' ascension demonstrates that he perfectly fulfilled the Father's will. You know, and, and, and this is what the Holy Spirit does is it convicts us of the truth that Jesus is righteous. If all this evidence is laid before us of, of, of you know, we'll go, I mean, of apologetics and stuff like that, you hear all these evidence laid upon before us. William Lane Craig, he says it like this, is like when you are going through hard times and God seems distant and unreal, then being familiar with the arguments and the evidence for Christianity's truth can help you to remember that our faith is not based on emotions, but on the truth. And therefore you must hold onto it. So it's, and that's what the Holy Spirit does. It's like when faith, it seems like it's tested and it seems like, like faith is just being bam, bam, bombarded. And, the, and Jesus is warning the disciples that that time's about to come, that the evidence and the truth that I was speaking is about to be come head first to reality. Jesus is saying, hold truth to this. Have faith in me. And this is what the Holy Spirit does is it, it, it convicts us of the truth. And the third thing he says he, in, that the Holy Spirit does is it convicts the world of the coming judgment. And we've already made this statement before is that the judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged and the rule of this world is the devil you know the one that is 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 going for Christ you know trying to get his job basically and the judgment of satan means that there will be a final reckoning between god and his rebellious creation and god and jesus wants to be part of that rebellious creation and so what he says you know i have not come into the world to condemn the world but to save it i've come to save the world because i've loved it so much and that's what the holy spirit does is like you know 
if you want to be saved, if you don't want to be damned like the devil, and if you don't want to be damned with the rebellious creation, that you need to have faith in, in Christ and come to him that, so that your judgment can be passed over upon him, upon the sins of the world. And that's what Jesus is saying is, I have faith in me. Yeah. Sorry. And he continues on, uh, just hitting on Scripture again, verse 12, read through uh, verse 15. Jesus says, I have yet many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you things that are coming. He will glorify me, for he will take from what is mine and will declare it to you. All things, whatever the Father has, are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will declare it to you. So I have a question hmm. that we might not have an answer to. So we'll just remain open What's here. new? But, yeah. <laughs> it's like I'm reading it for the first time. Verse 13, when Jesus uh, talked about the, the spirit of truth, says, For he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak. What does that mean? Because <laughs> that, that, that makes my brain trip over itself. Like, is that kind of... Because the only thing that I can get from that... Uh, personally, just from my little pea-sized brain, theologically speaking, is the Holy Spirit's being treated as like a mediator, sort of. Like, theoretically, the, the Holy Spirit is hearing, like, the God's audible voice or something like that. Which, I mean, when I say mm-hmm. that, it, mm-hmm. I, I feel like that's wrong, but also I, I don't know. So. I, would, I don't think so. I, th- I think, really? you, I think okay. you're on track. Because I think the Holy Spirit in itself is a direct result communicator with God to us. Okay, so we have, this is my pea brain thinking too, is that God the Father, we have access to him because of Jesus himself, which this is part of the whole, the, the Trinity aspect, you know, it's just like we have access because the Holy Spirit now dwells within us, an aspect of God himself now dwells within us. And so now we can understand scripture. We can understand a little bit of the, the drawing sense of like a calling to ministry or a calling to uh to Jesus uh, and, and accept him as our Lord and Savior. So the aspect of the Holy Spirit is one with the will of God. So let's just imagine this. Even though the Holy Spirit is something completely different than Jesus, but yet the same as Jesus. It has a different function, but yet it's the same. Um, he, The Holy Spirit is doing the will of the Father as well. He doesn't speak of his own. So just what Jesus said on his, on his life on earth, he says, I speak of the will of the Father, not of my own will. So the Holy Spirit does the same thing, is that it speaks on the will of the Father, not by its own merit. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm getting you there. That, that makes uh, at least a bit more sense. Because like, the Holy Spirit is treated as like, more or less a, a translator in some ways. Like that. Yeah, yeah, I could see, that, I could see yeah. that as being a translator. Yeah, I'm okay sense. with that word. Um, because the Holy Spirit does allow for some level of discernment. Because, I mean, mm-hmm. Jesus is confirming, like, the Holy Spirit has this authority to convict. So, I mean, if the Holy Spirit, if, if you have the Holy Spirit, then when you sin, you're going to feel that conviction. It's going gonna, it's gonna to go beyond, uh, like, someone that, that doesn't believe, that just does something that, like, they're aware of is bad. And they're like, oh, I, I probably shouldn't do that again. Mm-hmm. But if you have the Holy Spirit in it, like, you do feel, like, a, a like existential conviction. Like, that is something that weighs heavily on you. Uh, just on a whole nother level. So yeah, yeah, I, I can I can see that. I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting now. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what the Holy Spirit does. It guides us to the truth. 
You know, and, and I'm not saying that those that are not Christians cannot live in truth. I mean, there's a sense of, of, of creation morality. Atheists, guess what? They can be moral. They can do good, moralistic things. They can. The thing is, though, I think the Holy Spirit does something greater than that natural morality in the sense that it will let us understand a deeper understanding of, okay, why is it good to do to take care of a widow instead of getting a tax break on my uh, tax income or whatever? You know, to give to certain you can tell this man those taxes. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> I got a tax break on my tax on my tax income. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not I'm not a money guy, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, because yeah. I I know a lot of I know a lot of atheists that you know they give more charitable than the church itself, but you, you ask them why is like, well, you know, it gives me a tax break. You know, it gives me a tax cut. You know, I get you know such and such and such such and such. You know, they have no reason of why. And that's one thing that I think the church has done kind of poor at is that we have forgotten the aspect of Christ community. And I, I read this in, in one of the books, uh, one of the Mark 9 books called The Gospel. And the Holy Spirit does something in us, and I think it should convict the, should convict the church, is that the Spirit is now the guide to the kingdom of God and the economy and the, and the community of mercy, grace, and truth. Now, he put a little equation in here. I'm, I'm going to try to explain this the best that I can without being weird. So you have the church, okay? The church, if it is totally, if it, if it focuses on Scripture and it focuses on the truth, and it does all the things, and it knows all the doctrines, and it knows everything it needs to know about Scripture, but it is minus the gospel community aspect, then it is a kingdom hypocrisy. Basically, they don't practice what they preach. And so now you have a church that has gospel community, and it is reaching out to the community, it is giving to the poor, it is feeding all these people out, and it is housing uh, uh, the, 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 the homeless, and it is helping the orphans, and does all this, but then it's minus the gospel of the truth, of the doctrine, and of the, of the, the authority of Christ, of, of Scripture, then that is kingdom for, uh, Fragility. I bet if I said fragi- fragile, fragile. <laughs> fragility, uh, fragility, that, that it, it can be easily broken. I mean, if you don't have the truth and the foundations of the gospel, guess what? It can easily break. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but do you have an example of that? Because you just described a church that, like, by all accounts, you would consider to be like a flourishing church. Yeah, by, by all accounts. And I'm, I'm not going to point out here. Uh, well, I'm not asking, like, name a church. Yeah, name a church. Like, but let's just say, well, okay, okay. I will. I'll, I'll do this. I'll say Joel Osteen's church. Oh! Oh! I'm just saying. Oh! Oh! Shots! That's not. Uh, Fired. I, I mean, that to me, and this is, I'm, I'm saying this with a, like a, a little grain of salt. He's got a podcast. We're coming for you. Yeah. With a little grain of salt because I don't know all the things of Joel Osteen's heart and I don't know all the things that they do. I just know the evidence that I've seen before me and I've seen some of the stuff that I've done a tiny tiny bit of research they do some good kingdom work you know they do a lot of you know uh, uh, evangelizing to think to people of different countries and they do a lot of uh, you know feeding the poor and giving money here and there i mean they're a multi-billion dollar church huge i mean they're in a stadium legitly just say it company company multi-billion dollar consumerism company. but but 
But then you look at Joel Osteen's theology. It's weak, man. It's weak. It's bad. It's nasty. Yeah, it brings to mind uh, the pressure that he got put under when the hurricanes were happening, I yeah. believe, last year. And they they kept their doors shut to, to people that, that were seeking shelter. And, like, when, when Joel was asked, like, why weren't you opening uh, uh, your church up to these people that, that needed to seek refuge from these storms? Like, it was just a nothing answer. We're like, oh, well, you know, we, we just we, we keep our church closed during those hours, blah, 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 blah. Like yeah. That. Yeah, I, I mean, there there is evidence there. So that's a, that's a church that can easily break when pressured against true truth and reality of Scripture. But I think a church that is completely focused on the gospel and the truth of what Jesus says, and is completely also focused on a gospel-centered community, that is a church that is kingdom flourishing. And that's the equation that I think that we need to balance, that there needs to be a, a weight of the truth of what the Scripture says and also obeying what the Scripture says by doing uh, community work as well within sharing that love into the world for sure. So we'll skip down just a little bit and get to some more conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. Uh, verse 17, it says, Some of his disciples therefore said to one another, What is this that he says to us a little while, and then you won't see me? And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We don't know what he's saying. So, I mean, this is just another example of the disciples not mm -hmm. understanding what Jesus is telling them. I mean, hey, in other news, grass is green, water is wet, and God is good. Amen. Uh, <laughs> verse 19, therefore, Jesus perceived that they wanted to ask him. And he said to them, do you inquire among yourselves concerning this, that I said a little while, and you won't see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Most certainly I tell you that you will weep and lament. But the world will will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she gives birth, has sorrow because mm -hmm. her time has come. But when she has delivered the child, she doesn't remember the anguish anymore for the joy that a human being is born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. So first off, let's get a little bit of um, subtle, sassy Jesus mm -hmm. that takes place there that he perceives that his disciples want to ask him a question. Like, I just, I love that, that uh, choice of word. And I mean, that specific word might change a little bit. Um, In translation, but it's all right. On. But I, when I read that, I just imagine like the disciples just kind of huddled me like, dude, what, dang it, Jesus is using words that I don't, that I don't understand. Hey, Peter, did you get that? You're usually pretty good at this. Yeah, yeah, uh, Jesus totally, yeah, I don't know. I got nothing, man. I, I, how about, how about uh, Bartholomew? You, you got something here? Dude, I don't, I don't know. He's, he's speaking some. Whereas Jesus is just kind of like a couple feet away, like, so uh, you guys wonder what I meant by. <laughs> yeah. I'm, and I, I want to take, I also want to take a, a, a note from the disciples. It's like, you know, when it comes to stuff like that, we don't need to be afraid. And, and hard yeah. understandings, we don't need to be like, okay, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Maybe I'll understand it later. Dead gum ask. You know, and that's one thing like earlier uh, when, it, when Jesus says, you know, ask in my name and I shall give it to you. I think there's some things that, you know, you, you don't understand something about Scripture, about, you know, the way that God works or the way that, you know, why is this in Scripture? If you ask the Lord, I mean, he might he might. If it's in sincerity of your heart and within that will, I was like, he might actually show you and tell you, guess what? He actually might. And it may not be what you want. And it may be like, okay, maybe you just need to accept it by faith, you know, and by that way. But yet he still reveals a little bit of something if you ask it by the sincerity of your heart of your, of your will, of his will. Yeah, but honestly, I, I'll, I'll stick up for the disciples a little okay. bit here. All right. Because 
I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of times not recorded in Scripture that this kind of stuff happens. Oh, my I mean, goodness. For one, it happens plenty within Scripture. Plenty I can only within. assume that it happened plenty outside of Scripture. So I would view this as like the disciples being, oh, man, great. Let's just add this to the pile of things that Jesus said that we don't get now, but maybe we'll understand it later. Mm-hmm. Like maybe they they were just counting like, okay, clarification will come eventually. Jesus always pulls through. Uh, he th- this dude's never wrong, so I mean we'll we'll figure it out eventually. I'm sure. And they were just kind of maybe they were puzzling it out between themselves. And then Jesus is like, so guess what? Y'all get to have clarification instantly. Um, so here you go. <laughs> yeah, and so with this, with the statement that Jesus says, he says, "In a little while you won't see me anymore, but in a little while after that you will see me again." And so Jesus explains this with an allegorical uh, statement of childbearing. And this is this to be honest, this uh, this allegory of childbearing pains is very reminiscent all throughout Scripture because I th- is it Paul? There's somewhere in the New Testament where it says that even the world groans like labor pains for the return of Christ. Yeah, I think that's even a revelation as well. Yeah, but it's just like, you know, even the earth is groaning and waiting anticipation for the return of Jesus. Um, and we're not going to get into the kind of prophecy type deal thing, but, you know, with, you know, increase of earthquakes and disasters, and stuff like the, the earth is like at the very end of waiting for Christ's return for redemption. But anyways, so this is what Jesus is saying. He says that as a woman has labor pains, a pain of suffering occurs. And like, I I know that Demi has a child, but I've witnessed this several times, not only as a paramedic, but as a father myself, is that the time leading up, you know, the third trimester and like the, the hours anticipating the birth of the child, it is painful. And Lacey, Lord bless her, she tried to go all natural. No epidural, no nothing, and I'm just like, honey. There was the it was getting to the point where she was just like, it was awful. She was so much in pain that it was hurting me to see her in pain. I'm thinking, just take the daggum epidural, just take it, please. But like the pain is there, and I can see that it was just hurting so much. And like even within all the way to the first trimester, that she was she had you know major morning sickness that she just threw up all the daggum time. So this whole you know nine month period of just body changing and and, and chemistry uh, imbalance and stuff like that, and everything's just different and then like going to the very end it's just so painful and jesus says that you know but when but what is to follow is wonderful joy and this is what some of the translations say this wonderful joy that drowns out the pain of the per of the preceded cause of that effect and i think that's awesome is that the eyewitness the same thing is that after judah came out of the womb that the childbearing pain seemed almost non-existent to invisible like it never happened it never happened that the enjoyment the wonderful joy that jesus says here of the child being born is the gift out of that pain and jesus is saying that the death of the cross is 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 the funny thing here in the situation that we surround a lot of it around us and the reason why is that the death of the cross is the child bearing pain of that whole situation and out of that painful situation guess what something wonderful and joyous comes out of that and that is the resurrection of christ and the forgiving of our sins that is the the child coming out of the womb out of the pain of the cross of Jesus' death. And that's what we were talking about earlier is that it's funny that we revolve all of Christendom out of the symbolism of the cross. And the reason why is because of the beautiful thing that came 
out of the cross versus the painful thing of the cross. And I, I don't know about you, but I think it's important, like especially with like uh, Easter week and Easter Sunday, I think you need to see the painful stuff. I think you need to hear the painful stuff. And I've only watched it once. And to be honest, I don't want to watch it again. But like the Passion of the Christ, I think that's necessary to see how much pain that he was willing to bear to give us eternal life through it. And a lot of people think we're stupid for following a Christ that would allow himself to die. And that's what... uh, I just want to make it clear to the listener that... When Tanner was saying that last sentence, he looked over at the carpet, white Jesus. So uh, <laughs> I, I looked, I looked to it for affirmation. affirmation. <laughs> oh, you did that? I, like, I don't okay. know. <laughs> He's looking down on us. <laughs> it's just interesting that the whole thing that Jesus has come to do on Earth, that the disciples never do, could grasp it while he was on Earth. Which, I mean, it's not something you can grasp, really. You can't. And to be honest, I can't grasp it right now. It doesn't make any sense. And I think that's where, you know, within our hearts that I I question all the time. It's like, why the heck would you die for me, Jesus? I'm worthless. I'm I'm senseless. That doesn't make any sense. You know, I'm... I'm not faithful all the time. You know, I, I don't read my Bible all the time and I, I don't pray the way that I should. So it's like, why would you? But yeah, it's because of his grace and his mercy that he did, you know, and I think that's a beautiful picture that a motif that's been transcended all the way down from Genesis that you see in, in chapter three, that he's going to defeat death and the shame and the humiliation by taking that upon himself. Yeah. And it's amazing that this is something that he wants to do for us. Yeah. Like it, it's, it's an entirely selfless act. Like mm-hmm. He has no obligation to, mm-hmm. to make us happy, to give us joy, and yet that's something he promises. I mean, like uh, right there at the end of uh, verse 22, Jesus is saying, uh, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. And I'll just read through the rest of the chapter, uh, starting verse 23. It says, well, <laughs> well let me pre-laugh at, at okay. what comes at the end of verse 23. Ha! Because then Jesus <laughs> says, in that day, you will ask me no questions. <laughs> Oh, beautiful. I mean, I don't know if he meant that to, like, throw some shade, but, like, mm-hmm. that, that's what I read from it. Like, finally, you will ask me no more questions. I'm tired, I'm tired of hearing your silliness. Um, but he continues, Most certainly yeah. I tell you, whatever you may ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Uh, I have spoken these things to you in figures of speech, but the time is coming when I will no more speak to you in figures of speech but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I don't say to you that I will pray to the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. And his disciples said to him, Behold, now you are speaking plainly (laughs) and using no figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things and don't need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? (laughs) Behold, the time is coming, yes, and is now come that you will be scattered, everyone to his own place, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. I have told you these things, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have oppression. But cheer up! I have overcome the world. Man, I love that. This is I'm reading out of the, the World English Bible. But cheer up! I like that. I love it. <laughs> so let's just take note that in verse 
23 is the beginning of this whole conversation at the, of on this time, at this time, he's referring to at the resurrection. He says, you will ask me nothing. I, and I think that's what yeah. he's saying here is that, you know, when I resurrect, which the disciples don't don't understand that concept yep. yet, is that when I come again, when I return to you again, that you won't ask me anything. And I, I, I did, it doesn't say this plainly, but I kind of I took this as like, I wonder if they'll be just so shocked and overwhelmed oh, yeah. at the aspect yeah. that, he's, that he's alive. Definitely hints that, that in there. Guess what? Uh, they're so dumbfounded that they can't ask a question. And I, that's what I kind of took that they'll be completely speechless of his return. That and there's probably some relief in him saying that because I I doubt that the disciples really took offense from that. They probably took it more as like, oh, we're gonna get answers. Yeah. So I I get that from it as well. It's just the way it reads. Yeah, because I mean, laugh. you know, I'll use one of your terms. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Oh, you know, <laughs> but in their minds, I'm probably thinking later after the after he ascended. Into the heavens, which, spoiler alert, he ascends into the Father. And then an angel comes and says, why are you standing here looking up? You've got work to do, boys. <laughs> That's basically what, the, what, what, it said, what happens. And I can just imagine through their minds that afterwards, when everything's kind of settled down, they're thinking, okay, where was he at? Okay, what did he do? But that's what the Holy Spirit has come to do is to kind of give peace about these things and kind of give us understanding of what Jesus has actually been teaching. And... There's importance behind this whole thing of the Holy Spirit that we need to trust the Holy Spirit and trust in God's Spirit instead of man's Spirit. So, yeah, I did think that was funny. In verse 28, Jesus does say, I come from the Father, and I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world, and I'm going to the Father. And this is actually the first time, really, that Jesus has plainly said that I'm God. You know, he's, he's kind of sugarcoated it up a, a little bit, you know, and people have, you know, caught the drift and people have understood what he was saying. Yeah, which to be fair, if he had opened with that exact phrasing, it still wouldn't have made any sense. Yeah. Like the, this is this is very much a leading up to you being able to comprehend this sentence sort of deal. Yeah. And so Jesus is plainly staying here and this is what the disciples says, finally you you finally admit clearly that you are God incarnate, you that you are God in flesh here and it just surprises them. And so the question that I I had is like so why did he not start this at the beginning of his ministry? Because they couldn't handle it. I, I think part of it is they couldn't handle it. And two is that, to be honest, to get his ministry, to get a more out, more bang for his buck, I think he had to wait. Because if he started out of, out of the gate like that, then that's he'd probably been killed right out of the gate for, for quote-unquote, blasphemy. Yeah. That, and if he started, if he came out of the gate talking like this, like that's just not a good sales pitch. I mean, because let's be real, like some marketing has had to take place. Yes. I mean, I mean, yeah. you, had, you you had a hype man with John the Baptist. Yeah, you know, and you got miracles. Yeah, so you, yeah, if if like let let, let me uh, appeal to the older audience out there because I, I I know we've definitely got like just some crazy demographics. <laughs> when when that vacuum salesman comes up to your oh, house, gosh, that's an insult. <laughs> and you open that door, and there's there's this dude with a vacuum. Hello, boys. How how does how's he gonna try to to say that vacuum? He's he's gonna. Well, he's going to give that friendly greeting, like get, get you to invite him in the house. And then he'll he'll offer like the dirt on the floor, like give the example, like give. I mean, is that not kind of the miracle taking place? Mm -hmm. Like, look at the miracle of what this vacuum cleaner can do. <laughs> no, he doesn't say, good morning. How are you? So I have the uh, Dyson V300. It's got a 13 horsepower engine. Like he doesn't just start like listing uh, specifications of his vacuum off that he doesn't give you the boring stuff, the, the facts, the stuff that I mean, honestly matters. He. He, he gives you the easy stuff. I mean, he, have you seen the, have you seen the ShamWell videos? 
I mean, that's that's how the the sales pitch works. Yeah. Like Jesus yeah. is a pretty good salesman. I mean, wow. to be fair, he's got the greatest product that that ever was made. But I mean, he he's got a solid sales pitch. And if he started off with like the admittedly boring stuff like if he's just speaking in plain language mm-hmm. like that that's not going to perk up any ears necessarily that just sounds like the rantings of a crazy dude i mean that's i think that's how humans work and i think that's one reason why jesus did it this way is that like we like to see the evidence first so i think that's one reason why jesus did it this way is that he knows how we work and like i'd like to see the performance of a vehicle before i like to look at the specs of the vehicle and that's what Jesus said. Like he, he showed the performance of his ministry and why he came and what he did and, and stuff like that before he basically, all right, so here's the specs. I'm the son of God. I'm going to my father and stuff like that. So I think that's, that's – so the disciples saw that the final understanding, and it's funny that this understanding to us, to me, it sounds so elementary. Uh, yeah, Jesus is the son of God. Duh. <laughs> to me, it's like the first thing that the disciples understand. This is like the first thing that we as Christians like, okay, and non-Christians agree that, you know, that Jesus claims to be the son of God and is the son of God. Yeah, so that's like step one. I, I know, right? So I thought that was kind of, just kind of a no-brainer to me. But for the disciples, it's a hard hard bridge. Shoot, I never really thought of it that way. Because like when, when you witness to people like the like getting them to, uh, to ask Jesus into their heart, like, you literally have to start with that understanding of like God came to the world into in the flesh so He could die for your sins, and if you want to be saved, you need you need to ask Him into your heart mm-hmm. so you can take advantage of that that Holy Spirit. Like, shoot, we cover the whole Trinity in like our opening speech. I know, <laughs> like, right? And they and the disciples had to like work their way up to finally understanding it. I, man, I never thought of that. That's that that's pretty cool. Or at least that they understood that Jesus was speaking clearly yeah, <laughs> instead of exactly. in metaphors Which, and yeah, I mean, allegories and d- stuff. Day one of being saved, you obviously don't like understand everything, but I, oh, I, I find that interesting. You, that, you mean there's a point where you do understand everything? Well, I mean, have you not? Listen here, Tanner, <laughs> I, I have, I have read things for the first time for the last time. I got it all now. <laughs> Lord help us if we ever understand everything. I feel like scripture establishes pretty firmly that That we'll never understand everything. True, 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 true. And speaking of not understanding, Jesus is obviously very aware that even though he's he's doing um, the best job that he can possibly do of preparing his disciples for what's to come. But I mean, the type of stuff that's about to go down, like no one would be able to take that in stride, and his disciples are no exception. Uh, But Jesus does offer that uh, bit of consoling in the end, in that verse 33, just to repeat. Jesus says, I have told you these things, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have oppression, but cheer up. I have overcome the world. Mm-hmm. Man, what a, what a powerful thing to end that with. I have overcome the world. Making it clear that, like, dude, you, you've, you follow me, you believe in me, I'm going to protect you. And I have overcome the world so that you know that it has no power over you. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that, that, I mean, let, let's be completely honest here. Like, as fleshly beings... The world does have a physical power over us. As an influence, for sure. The advantage that we have in Christ is that's not the end. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's not something that my little fleshly brain can wrap itself around, but it's something that I can have faith in and understand that even though I don't understand this stuff, Jesus does, and that's good enough for me. Like, he knows it, so I don't have to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this goes to the you know the, the Christmas victors side of that, that because of Christ, death has no victory over us. And, and the painful side of the flesh that we can now have peace and understanding through the Spirit and through Christ dying. And, and that's one Jesus that says, I have overcome this, the difficulties of this world. I have defeated it. It's done. But it's not an altruistic 
type of way that Jesus has done things. Jesus didn't do it and didn't gain anything. Jesus died on the cross that he could gain glory out of this because of the obedience if we just trust and believe. He gained something out of dying on the cross, and that is glory, and that is authority over death, hell, and the grave. So, yes, we should love people without any cause, without any kind of reward or anything out of our own hearts, but yet we don't gain anything. God gains the glory. And so there is no such thing as an altruistic Jesus, is that there's something to be gained, and that is authority over death. That is a glory. That is a recognition beyond anything that we can ever comprehend. Jesus gets the glory. We don't. Yeah. And somewhere along the line when you were talking there, mm-hmm. it, it came to mind that we've experienced a decent shift in the way that um, the narrative is being displayed in Scripture. Um, the first I'd say about half of the book of John, we've been kind of observing uh, Jesus' work through actions. Like we've, yeah. we've seen what people are doing. Uh, we're, we're witnessing scenes take place, and we're kind of observing like a narrative take place uh, within these actions. But now it's like we're, we're getting pure monologue. Like mm-hmm. Jesus is getting heavy into like actual explanations. And are they easy to understand? Well, well, I guess it depends on how smart you are. Yeah. For me personally, I mean, not not, not really. There, there's a lot of confusion <laughs> taking place. If you're the disciples, then there's definitely a lot of confusion taking place. Uh, but you're getting more, like, directly from the horse's mouth, really. I mean, Jesus yeah. is giving direct, in some areas, uh, plain explanations for what's going down. And as we continue uh, next week when we discuss John chapter 17, it, it's going to be more of Jesus really kind of um, zooming out and giving his disciples an opportunity to view the big picture. Mm-hmm. Now, will they understand it? Well, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and place my bets on no, but that that's a bridge that we will cross next week. So as always, you can uh, can reach us on, on our email, our social media. We keep that in, in the show notes. Uh, it feels weird saying it every week. Like, I know it's something that's my, that's, yeah. that's my responsibility, but... But you, you know yeah. where it is. Just yeah. give a little tap. You'll get there. Yeah, join us on the Facebook. We've been having some good conversations. I think uh, last week there was a conversation over, is it godly to have beards? <laughs> <laughs> I think Charles, Absolutely. Yeah. I, th- I think Charles Spurgeon said, had a quote that, you know, it's it's biblical to have beards and stuff like that, which I, it was a joke, but yet it was like, huh, interesting conversation. So yeah. yeah, start start some amazing conversations on Facebook so Mason can be extremely jealous that he wasn't yeah. uh, here to, to join the banter. But. So. I I want to point out too. I don't know if we'll get this far though. Oh. I was told by you know an expert that had, that knows things of the the next trending social media thing, phases or, or whatnots. But this is what he told me. He says the next trending phase is coming back. It's is Pinterest. I wasn't aware that Pinterest went away. Well, it's coming back to like uh, the, the. It went away in the sense of like not being popular, but yet this guy says that. It's a it's it's coming. It will probably come back next year as more popular in the sense of going up to like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram huh. level. I don't see it. It's got too much of a stigma around it. Which not like a negative stigma, but like they have their demographic like set up. Yeah. But we are not a marketing podcast. No, we're so not. We're, we're gonna go ahead and cut this sucker off. So Tanner, give me those magic words. Peace out.